right, let's do it. Three, two, one. Oh my goodness. Good morning. Good afternoon. Whatever it is for you, I hope you're having a fantastic day. Thank you so very much for tuning in. Today is Monday, December 23rd. I hope you're having a great day. Whether you're in France, we have people listening to the show in France. That blows my mind. Whether you're in Germany, America, morning, afternoon, whatever it is for you, I hope, again, you're having a great day. We have a great show today. We're going to talk about the Bills and the Patriots. We're going to revisit the Patriots cheating scandal. Oh, man, I got a, um, I got a special opinion on that that I think nobody else in really the sports media has the even perspective to share because I've done a lot of different stuff that I think most football people haven't done. Uh, we're going to talk about the Dallas Cowboys. We'll talk about the Saints and the Titans. We're going to talk about Michael Thomas breaking the single-season receptions record. We're going to talk about Joe Burrow. We're going to talk about a really interesting, I think interesting, theory about Justin Herbert, a future uh, first-round pick and a quarterback coming out into the 2020 NFL Draft. Um, and we're going to talk about the Rams. They were eliminated from the playoffs. We have so many huge stories. Uh, I am really excited for today. I had a a very good weekend, a weekend I much needed to kind of recuperate and get myself back together. Um, I want to share a personal message very quickly. I know I do a lot of those, but hey, it's my show. It's really important for me to talk directly to you guys. Um, I've been in a dark place in the last couple weeks. Uh, really the worst spot I've been, the lowest point I've been since my younger brother died four years ago. Um, and I want to say just thank you so very much for watching and listening to Strong Opinion Sports. Um, I've gotten amazing support from you guys, and I... I cannot thank you enough. I really cannot even, I just can't give you guys enough thank you and enough gratitude. Um, thank you for giving me the time I needed to, to heal and do it the right way. You know, I, no one was pressuring me to make content last week when I was just a complete wreck and I had time to heal and gather myself. And again, I'm just so very grateful. Uh, I love my job. I really have uh, the greatest job in the world. I love making content. I love talking about sports. I love writing about sports. The whole process to me is so much fun. And so thank you so much for supporting Strong Opinion Sports. It just means the absolute world to me. Um, and it, it just, man, it makes me so stinking happy. I love my job, and I love doing this. Um, here's where I want to start today. Uh, we, have, we have three games I want to talk about specifically first, then we're going to jump into some other storylines throughout the NFL. Um, the New Orleans Saints just beat the Tennessee Titans 38-28. to And, uh, man, the game was actually a lot closer than the final score would indicate at one point, the Titans led 14-0. to zero. The Saints actually battled back. They took a lead. But here's the really important detail. With four minutes left to go, the Titans were down 38-28 to 28 with the ball and momentum. The Titans had a really big play. They threw the ball vertically downfield. They had a huge catch. And on that catch, they fumbled. That led to a Saints touchdown. That is why the final score was 38-28. to 28. But really, this game came down to the wire till the very last possession. And uh, man... The Tennessee Titans deserve a ton of respect. They're eight and seven right now. They're going to finish the year either eight and eight or nine and seven, but they will be one of the best teams all time with an eight and eight or nine and seven record. Remember, the Titans started two and four. They had a really bad beginning to the year, and they made a really gutsy change. It's one of the best stories of the year to me. They benched their starting quarterback, their longtime starting quarterback, Marcus Mariota, and replaced him with Ryan Tannehill. And oh my, I, you know, I said, oh my goodness. Like, it's because it's awesome. It's like, oh, it's cool. He's a former Dolphins quarterback. The Dolphins basically threw Ryan Tannehill away like trash. They traded him away to the Titans for nothing. And he has proven that indeed he is a good quarterback. That 
fires me up a redemption story. Someone who is discarded and not appreciated, really proving their value and their worth. Uh, man, oh my gosh. Ryan Tannehill is playing the best football of his entire career this year with the Tennessee Titans. And really, I think his experience of being with the Dolphins and failing and being rejected shaped him into a better person and really a better quarterback. He's playing phenomenal football, uh, and I, I just am so excited with him. He's not a flashy quarterback. He's He never really wow Like, you never see Ryan Tannehill. Patrick Mahomes, you watch Patrick Mahomes play quarterback or you watch Lamar Jackson play quarterback, you go, oh, that's something that nobody else in the league could do. You never do that with Ryan Tannehill. He's not like an, a special flashy quarterback. But man, he does his job so well. He can run a little bit, which is really valuable actually in 2019 to be able to move your legs and I guess use your legs and extend a play or run when you need to. But the Titans use play action a lot. They fake the run and throw the ball. They run heavily with their running backs. And Ryan Tannehill is really, really efficient playing quarterback. He just executes well. He does his job. He makes good decisions. I can't say enough good about him. It just is. Ryan Tannehill, man, is like, he's, well, he's comeback player of the year. He will be this year. And he is playing his butt off and playing, really, again, the best football of his entire career. I'm so happy for him. Now, another big storyline out of this game, there are two big receivers in this game. One, Michael Thomas. Michael Thomas, the Saints wide receiver, broke the single-season receptions record. He now has 145 catches on the year. He has more catches in a single season than anyone ever in NFL history. That's pretty cool. But another storyline here is the Titans wide receiver and rookie receiver, A.J. Brown. He is arguably the rookie of the year. He has 48 catches, 927 yards, seven receiving touchdowns. He also had a touchdown rushing his first one of the year in this game against the New Orleans Saints. And uh, I just want to point out, it's really funny to me that two of the best young receivers in the NFL, the best rookie receivers in the NFL are DK Metcalf and AJ Brown. Both of them last year were at Ole Miss, which is, you know, Mississippi. And how telling is that about Mississippi's quarterback that, look, look no offense, but let's just be honest, Jordan Tamu. The former the quarterback last year at Ole Miss had two, not one, but two premier NFL receivers, and he still struggled and wasn't great. I mean, it's very telling. He's playing this year in the XFL, I think, with the St. Louis Battlehawks. Jordan Tamu, eh, I, I just am not a big believer. I've never been a big believer. I watched him in college, not great. And the fact that his former receivers are dominating the NFL and he couldn't play great with them, that's very telling about the former Ole Miss quarterback. Now the Saints. Oh my gosh. Uh, the Saints are a juggernaut. I mean, the word juggernaut basically means that they are one of the, they are a powerhouse football team in the NFL. They have this incredible offensive line. They have a Hall of Fame coach. They have a Hall of Fame quarterback. That's, you know, Sean Payton at coach. Drew Brees at quarterback. They have Alvin Kamara at running back. They have Michael Thomas at receiver. He's now the, uh, has a single season receptions record in the NFL. Jared Cook at tight end. They have this incredible like Swiss Army knife, you know, Taysom Hill. And, you know, I have two thoughts walking away from this. Number one is that the Saints can literally do whatever they want on offense. They get gigantic chunks constantly. They throw for 35 yards, 15 yards, 25 yards. Bam, bam, bam. They make big plays downfield. I mean, they just aggressively take yards away from teams with gigantic throws downfield. It's really impressive. But the other thing, watching the New Orleans Saints, it just, it kind of hits you in the face. You go, man, I feel bad for the Patriots quarterback, Tom Brady. Can you imagine if Tom Brady, the Patriots quarterback, had the weapons that Drew Brees has in New Orleans? The talent around him? Man, the Saints are 12-3, and three, and so are 
the New England Patriots. And yet one quarterback has way better weapons. Drew Brees has better tools at his disposal. And everyone keeps saying how, you know, Tom Brady's getting old and he's not as good, yada, yada. And it's like people forget context. Oh, Tom Brady has lesser weapons than almost anybody in the NFL, let alone compare him to Drew Brees, who has just this embarrassment of riches. I mean, nobody would argue if Tom Brady played for the New Orleans Saints, had a Hall of Fame head coach, had a Hall of Fame head coach, which he does in New, in New England, but he doesn't have a Hall of Fame offensive coordinator, which is what Drew Brees has. And if, Drew, if Tom Brady had the weapons and players around him that Drew Brees does, there would be no narrative that Tom Brady's declining. I mean, I, I just cannot say it enough. It's so impressive to me that Drew Brees finds a excuse me that Tom Brady, the Patriots quarterback, has found a way to have the same record as New Orleans Saints with far fewer weapons and fewer tools. To me, it's so impressive. And every time I watch the Saints, I can't help but look at it and go, they have so many weapons in New Orleans, and they're an incredible football team. But Tom Brady doesn't have any of that, and he still finds a way to have the same record as them. That's so impressive to me and really cool. And it's just a thing that nobody really seems to quite value enough how good, how talented the New Orleans Saints are. That leads me to the second game I want to talk about. On Saturday, the New England Patriots beat the Buffalo Bills 24-17. to and uh, first of all, it was Tom Brady's best game of the year. He, was 10, he started the game 10 for 10. His 11th pass was actually a throwaway. That's how he got his first incompletion. That's usually how he gets incompletions. He goes, hey, instead of taking a sack, because my offensive line is bad, I'm going to get rid of the ball. Um, and Brady was really good in key moments. There was a really important play that stuck out to me. It was like third and 14, and he threw the ball for 12 yards to Julian Edelman. Those 12 yards were really important because it set up a 36-yard field goal, which had a huge impact on the final score in the game. Um, and it's so interesting to me how people have such a hard time acknowledging, hey, uh, Drew Brees is still, or (laughs) Tom Brady, Tom Brady is still a very successful quarterback and very capable quarterback in the NFL. For whatever reason, I I don't understand. People just cannot see how good he is and can't appreciate it. Even football people, I go, what are you looking at? I just don't understand. Now, the difference between the Patriots and the Buffalo Bills in this football game was indeed quarterback play. Tom Brady was really good in key situations and third down moments on the goal line, yada, yada. And uh, Josh Allen was not good in those same key situations on third down on the goal line. Um, I want to credit the Bills franchise. It's really, really cool. The Bills have come so far. I mean, they are like (laughs) right behind the New England Patriots. They're so close. And the Bills eventually, man, they are going to beat the New England Patriots. They are right behind them. They're just missing a little bit of polish, and that's the difference between the Patriots and the Bills right now. The Bills are a really talented football team, but the Bills' young quarterback, second-year quarterback Josh Allen, simply made too many mistakes in key moments to beat a team like the New England Patriots. There are five key moments I want to point out, five really missed opportunities from this game that I think are important to detail and, and flesh out a little bit. It was a third and seven early in the game where Josh Allen had a, he threw a bad throw towards the end zone, had a guy open in the end zone. He couldn't hit him on third, uh, third and seven. That caused the Bills to kick a field goal rather than get a touchdown. And in fact, they weren't able to capitalize. The Patriots had a, a key fumble. Rex Burkhead fumbled. The Bills drove all the way down the field, but they could not capitalize on that turnover and get a touchdown. Instead, they had to settle for a field goal because their quarterback was inaccurate on third down. That's strike number one. There's actually five of them. Number two, Josh Allen missed with an inaccurate throw to Cole Beasley on a third and eight. That's a big deal that caused them to punt. On third and six, later in the game, 
Josh Allen missed with an inaccurate pass, six inches probably too far to the inside. That caused another Bills punt. There was a third down later where Josh Allen forced the ball into double coverage. Another punt followed that. And then at the very end of the game on on second and goal, Josh Allen had a receiver open in the end zone. And what did, I'll give you one guess. What did he do? He threw an inaccurate pass. Inaccurate passes on key downs and in key moments were the theme of the game for Josh Allen. Josh Allen is a very talented quarterback. He's got to sharpen up in those really you know, fast-paced, intense, key moments. If he doesn't, he's never going to beat a team like the New England Patriots. Now, I do want to give a really big shout-out to Brian Dable, the offensive coordinator of the Buffalo Bills. I am so impressed with him. Number one, he's done a really good job developing Josh Allen. You can't overcomplicate things too quickly for a young quarterback. The progression and the way they've slowly introduced new concepts and taking their time with, with giving Josh Allen time to catch up to the speed of the game, really impressive because they've, they've balanced both simple things, having simple concepts to keep Josh Allen uh, developing. But they've had that one balance of simplicity while also balancing complexity to get guys open and create good matchups and get receivers open. And they're somehow managing to pull off both, which is so cool and so uh, really impressive to me from the perspective of just a guy who loves quarterbacks. Brian Dable, the Bills offensive coordinator, deserves a round of applause. He's doing a fantastic job. I don't think he's really appreciated well enough around the NFL. He he coached at Alabama at one point. I, I think nobody really understands, hey, this guy in Buffalo is doing a fantastic job. Josh Allen looks better than Sam Darnold, the quarterback in New York with the Jets. And I, I, it's just very important. you got to recognize and appreciate, hey, the offensive coordinator in Buffalo is doing a great, great job with their young quarterback. Now, I will say, this is not uh, Brian Dable's fault, but I do have a concern about Josh Allen. The way that Josh Allen runs around, extends plays, it causes him to take big hits. He gets hit a lot. Um, and uh, in fact, I would say that Josh Allen takes bigger, worse hits than the Ravens quarterback, Lamar Jackson, even though Lamar Jackson runs around a ton. He, Lamar Jackson runs the ball far more frequently than Josh Allen and in a different style than Josh Allen. But Josh Allen just takes hits like he's not even expecting them. He doesn't get down very well. He gets nailed a lot. And, you know, Josh Allen's got to do a better job protecting himself or else at some point it's going to catch up to him and he's going to get hurt. Now, my final point of the game, final point of the, really my analysis from this game between the Bills and the Patriots is that the Patriots rookie receiver, Nikhil Harry, is, he's the best athlete for the Patriots on offense, and he's got a really bright future ahead of him. He's a rookie, he's still learning, and he needs to just keep developing mentally. He's got a a really solid foundation that physically, man, he can beat man coverage, he's great running, he's good at catching, he can run with the ball in his hands. If you just give you know, Nikhil Harry a little bit more time to get up to speed and get mentally on the right track with the Patriots offense, next year, maybe two years from now, Nikhil Harry is going to be a monster in the NFL. He's too physically gifted to go under the radar for too long. He's got a really bright future. Again, I just want to be very clear. Nikhil Harry is going to become a stud in due time. Give it patience, but man, Nikhil Harry has a bright future ahead of him in New England. Okay, that leads me to my final real point of the game, uh, really point of the weekend that I want to, you know, the game I want to recap so far. We have a lot of games we'll talk about. I'm not going to get to all of them today. I had eight football games to watch. I didn't watch all of them. I'm going to watch the rest of them after I record this, and we'll get into that later in a minute. Um, (laughs) 
before the Eagles played the Dallas Cowboys on Sunday, a friend of mine put on, you know, it was on, I think, Instagram. He said, how about them Cowboys? And uh, the minute the Cowboys lost to the Eagles, I replied, yeah, uh, dot, dot, dot. How about them Cowboys? I mean, the Eagles beat the Cowboys 17 to 9. The Eagles are now 8 and 7. The Cowboys are now 7 and 8. And the Eagles control their own destiny. The Cowboys do not have control over whether or not they win the division. If next weekend the Cowboys lose, they have no shot at winning the division. And the only way that the Cowboys can win the division now is if they win next weekend and the Eagles also lose. That's not a good spot to be in. Now, I have been told all season long, Cowboys fans keep telling me, our roster is incredible and our quarterback is amazing. We got to pay our fantastic young quarterback, Dak Prescott. Well, um, a Eagles roster, which is not as talented, with a quarterback that did get paid a lot of money. Oh, uh, awkward. The Eagles are the ones in charge of the division right now, and they have a better record than the Dallas Cowboys. Now, first of all, it's coaching. Coaching is a huge issue right now in Dallas. That's a problem. But the other big warning sign, I'm telling you, I, you know, I've, I've flip-flopped, I've been all over on this, but I, the more I look at it, the more I'm sure of this one thing. I would not pay Dak Prescott $35 million a year. I just, I, I've been back and forth because it's been inconsistent play from him. And I'm re- it's, it's week 16. The year's almost over. I've settled now. I found a spot where I land on this. Dak Prescott's too inconsistent as a passer. I'm not comfortable giving him $35 million a year. It's a bad idea. It's just not a smart investment for the Dallas Cowboys. Now, the narrative currently is that Dak Prescott, the Dallas Cowboys quarterback, is hurt. He has an injury, I believe. I can't remember specifically, but I think it's his AC joint. Uh, I know it's an injury to his, his throwing shoulder, his right shoulder, where he throws the football with. Um, now, what I saw against the Eagles was that Dak Prescott was really struggling with accuracy. And you can, you can blame the injury to the shoulder if you want. However, this is not a new problem for Dak Prescott. This has been an ongoing issue for a long time where you know, Dak Prescott's lack of accuracy and really lack of pinpoint, he's accurate to, a, to some degree. But the ability to make throws consistently into really small windows, into, you know, he's not perfect within a six-inch margin. He's perfect within a a five-foot margin, and that's a big difference. The pinpoint accuracy is not there, and it hasn't been there for a long time for Dak Prescott. There's a, there's a video. Look, I know it's not fair. It's at, like, a Super Bowl party, but it's, it's David Carr, the former Texans quarterback, and Dak Prescott having a throw-off where they have an accuracy challenge. And David Carr, look, they're both in suits. It's not really, again, their street clothes is not fair. But David Carr took Dak Prescott to task. Dak Prescott couldn't hit any of the targets in front of him. I don't know if he was drunk. I don't know what was going on, but he was... Horribly inaccurate, and that's exactly how he plays football now. He throws the ball generally in the right direction, but within a six-inch margin, he cannot aim small, miss small. He is not pinpoint accurate enough to do what he needs to do and to win enough games in the NFL. It's just a big problem for him. Now, the Cowboys receivers had a ton of drops against the Philadelphia Eagles. I can acknowledge that. The receivers were not good enough. However, Dak did not do them any favors. I mean, I'm telling you, when... (laughs) Dak would throw a throw a little bit off, a little bit high, a little bit behind a guy. That makes a catch tougher. So the receivers for the Cowboys didn't make tough catches. They got to catch those passes that are a little bit behind them, maybe a little bit high. They're harder to catch, but you got to catch them. But again, Dak Prescott is not pinpoint accurate enough. He's missing throws that he's, he's really got to make. Um, it's, it's on both. But it's the same issue every single year with Dak Prescott. Dak Prescott cannot complete passes into smaller windows. 
And then sometimes Dak Prescott, Dak Prescott will miss guys who are wide open. And that's a massive, massive concern you cannot stand for and you cannot live with. Uh, there are two throws that are burned in my memory from this Philadelphia Eagles game. Number one, there's a throw on third and 11 where Dak Prescott had Amari Cooper open and he just air-mailed it, you know, air-mailed it way over his head, way over his head, just completely missed Amari Cooper. Amari Cooper was open. That should have been a first down and Dak Prescott completely missed. Then later in the game, it was later earlier, I can't remember it. At one point in the game, there's also a throw down the left sideline where Tavon Austin beats his man. He's wide open down the left sideline and Dak Prescott just missed. Dak Prescott just missed a guy wide open on a play that would have been a touchdown Whew, I'm telling you, giving Dak Prescott a gigantic contract is a bad, bad idea. I'm not doing it. If I'm if I'm the Dallas Cowboys, no way I'm not giving him that money. Um, he's way too dependent on having really high-level playmakers around him. If the people around him don't make good plays, they don't win. And if you pay Dak Prescott a ton of money, oh, guess what? The playmakers around him aren't going to be as good because you won't be able to afford them. And so it's a catch-22 uh, Dak needs a lot of help in order to win. And if you pay him a lot of money, he won't be able to get as much help. So I think the Dallas Cowboys should franchise tag him, see if maybe a better coach helps him more. And if he doesn't play better next year, you give him like $20 million a year. You don't give Dak Prescott $35 million a year. That's just lunacy, and it's a bad idea. The Cowboys franchise quarterback is limited by his lack of pinpoint accuracy. His lack of high-level accuracy throwing the football holds him back. And uh, if you can't tell... Accuracy is kind of an important trait for a quarterback. I would not pay Dak Prescott $35 million a year. No way in the world. Okay, there are a couple things not included in this episode I do plan to talk about in the future. Uh, There's only so much time in the day. There's a lot of football I had to watch last night and this morning. Um, I'm going to, in the next episode, I'm going to talk about what happened to the Seattle Seahawks. How did they lose to the Arizona Cardinals? What went on? Russell Wilson. I I can't remember. The stat line I thought was bad. I I have no idea. I want to see what happened. I also want to watch Will Greer, the rookie quarterback for the Carolina Panthers. He had three interceptions, played really bad. What happened to him? His first NFL start, it seemed pretty bad. What went on for Will Greer? We'll talk about the Giants and Redskins. They had a really wonderful game where it went to overtime. It, had a, it just looked like a really, really fun game. And, uh, man, I, I, we'll talk about Mitchell Trubisky because Mitchell Trubisky, the Bears quarterback, does not appear to be meeting the expectations he needs to meet. He's not meeting the minimum standard he set for himself, and that's really bad. So uh, I'm lucky. I'm on the internet. I have no boss. There's no time allotment. I need. I, this doesn't need to be a three-hour show or a two-hour show. The show is as long as it needs to be. And because I don't have a boss and I don't have time restrictions, I can take as much time as I want. And so to, I'm recording a show tonight after, either tonight or tomorrow morning. We'll talk about Monday Night Football. We'll do the NFL. We'll do the, the NBA update weekly. We'll do the NHL update week, weekly update. And then we'll talk about those couple things I just mentioned because I didn't have time to finish watching those games, but I really want to watch a football game before I talk about it. A lot of people just look at box scores and go, oh, this guy did bad. Here's what we learned from it. No, no, I want to watch the game and be really well informed before I talk about something. And so I want to be clear with you guys. Um, I think that watching a game gives you more depth and better content. And so I wanted to have a dialogue with you guys, tell you, hey, that stuff's coming. We're not talking about it in this episode, but we have a lot ahead still to discuss. I want to shift gears to Michael Thomas. <clears throat> In case you're not familiar, yesterday Michael Thomas broke the single season record for the most catches in a single season. That was not a good sentence. I want to repeat it again. I'm just going to restart it. Yesterday Michael Thomas broke a record 
The record he broke, he's a wide receiver for the New Orleans Saints. He has now 145 catches this season. That is the most catches ever in a single season by a receiver. That's a pretty huge accomplishment. The previous record was 143 catches. Marvin Harrison, the former Colts receiver, held that record for 17 years. That's a long time. And the crazy part is that Michael Thomas broke that record with still one game left on the schedule, which means that in theory, I don't think he's going to play next week. I would rest him if I was in New Orleans Saints. But if Michael Thomas did indeed play next week, his lead would be padded even more. He would have he would really elongate that record for the single season receptions record. That's unbelievable. He did it in 16 games. That's a big deal. It's really, really cool. But I do want to make something clear. Despite the record that Michael Thomas just broke, just because Michael Thomas is now the single season receptions record holder, that does not make him the best receiver in the NFL. Now, to be clear, Michael Thomas is an outstanding receiver. He does a great job. He deserves the record. He worked his butt off. And he's an incredible, incredible football player. However, Julio Jones is the best receiver in the NFL. And I just, I, you get mad at me if you want, but the best receiver in the NFL, that's Julio Jones. Context matters. The people you have around you, it matters. The situation you're in, it matters. Michael Thomas is a true star receiver. If you put him on any NFL team, he's going to have great numbers. Michael Thomas would be a star no matter what football team he played on. However, I cannot imagine a better scenario for a star receiver to play in than currently for the New Orleans Saints. Think about what Michael Thomas has in New Orleans. Michael Thomas has a Hall of Fame quarterback, Drew Brees. He also has incredible matchups he gets to deal with all the time. He has Sean Payton, a Hall of Fame offensive coordinator and Hall of Fame head coach. He's one of the best offensive minds ever to coach in the NFL. And Sean Payton, the coach's strength is this. He is really good at building an offense around the strengths of his players. He's really good at getting the best out of his players. That's what Sean Payton does better than almost anybody in the history of the NFL. Not to mention, oh, Michael Thomas has really good teammates around him. He's got a great offensive line, good receivers around him. Um, and, you know, the Saints borderline force feed Michael Thomas the ball. And I'm really not even trying to take away from Michael Thomas. I know it sounds like I'm trying to discredit him or say he's not as good as he is. No, again, Michael Thomas deserves the record he got. He worked his butt off. He's taking advantage of every single opportunity he's had. Hey, well done, Michael Thomas. I'm not, I'm really, it sounds like I'm trying to, you know, give him backhanded compliments. I'm not. He's really phenomenal. But I want you to compare Michael Thomas's situation to the situation of Julio Jones in Atlanta. Michael Thomas has Drew Brees, a Hall of Fame quarterback. Julio has Matt Ryan, who's he's fine. He's good. He won an MVP at one point when he had a really good coach. Michael Thomas has a coach, Sean Payton, who's phenomenal. In Atlanta, they had one good coach a long time ago, Kyle Shanahan. Since then, it's been a lot of mess. They had, oh my gosh, Steve Sarkeesian. They have Dirk Cutter right now, the former Buccaneers head coach. Uh, Dirk Cutter's, <laughs> whew, uh, he's got some problems. Here's how the Falcons offense operates under Dirk Cutter. Players are asked to adapt to the system in Atlanta. Whereas in New Orleans, they have a different philosophy. They adapt their system to fit their players, which means that, hey, it's easier to succeed when the system works to benefit you rather than you having to adapt and benefit the system. 
Oh, and, and let's not forget that Michael Thomas has better players around him and a better offensive line. If you swapped Julio Jones and Michael Thomas, if you put Julio Jones in New Orleans with a Saints uniform on, he'd put up better numbers than Michael Thomas because he's a better receiver than Michael Thomas. Michael Thomas is incredible. His work ethic is amazing. But again, Julio Jones is a better player. And it's not really fair because Julio Jones is a far better athlete. He can do everything. Julio Jones is not only the best athlete in the NFL to play receiver, he also has the other gifts where he works incredibly hard. And man, he catches everything. He's got great body control. He's got great spatial awareness. Julio Jones is a great blocker. He can run after the catch. His effort, his work ethic's incredible. I mean, it's unrivaled what Julio Jones does and who he is as a receiver. And uh, Michael Thomas is a fantastic receiver. He earned the record he got. He's the single-season receptions record holder in the NFL. But do not forget, for a second, Julio Jones is the best receiver in the NFL. (sighs) This one's going to be fun. Oh, my. I'm going to do it. Oh, my goodness. I am so excited. Uh, These are the things I live for. This topic right here is... uh, gives me life i mean like it just gives it just so excited to share this um how do i even go (laughs) the patriots cheated the new england patriots technically by the book they cheated i acknowledge that it's very important uh they had a camera guy film something that he was not supposed to film now here's the story we're told about this incident and what happened behind the scenes we're told that and I, i do believe it the Patriots were filming a documentary for their series, Do Your Job. It's a real thing. You can look it up on YouTube. And uh, Do Your Job is where the New England Patriots television production team tells stories about people who work within the organization. It's a documentary-style series. Now, the Patriots employee, the cameraman, filmed an eight-minute video of the Bengals' sideline. And I know, when you hear that, you go, Zach, that's horrible. You, you film the Bengals' sideline? That's, it's pretty, you know, that's pretty clear. Hey, that's awful. And to make matters worse, when a Bengal security staff member confronted the cameraman, the Patriots employee, the guy quickly backtracked. He said, hey, oh, oh well, uh, I can delete this right away. Because the guy seemed like he knew he was pushing a boundary. That's, again, looks awful optically. The cameraman was supposed to be pointing his camera at a human being who was in the booth next to him, the guy who was you know, working on uh, the, the, the guy who was featured in the documentary piece to do your job piece. The cameraman was not supposed to be pointing his camera at the sideline. The cameraman was wrong. So technically, yes, I acknowledge. It's very important to say this. The Patriots cheated. Absolutely. Yes. 100%. But the train of thought and the train of reasoning I'm about to share with you, um, I think it's going to make you very mad if you hate the Patriots. If you do, I think you're not going to listen. But I I ask you to listen to this and, and be very, just have an open mind. My job is to be fair um, and do the best I can. And a lot of people have shared their thoughts about this Patriots cheating scandal. And all those people are football people. I have a very unique perspective on this topic because not only am I a football guy, I'm a former cameraman. When I, I'm a football guy. I played college football. I know a lot of people. I have a lot of contacts throughout the NFL and throughout college football. I know people who work in front offices in the NFL. It's a huge advantage I have over a lot of people that talk about sports. But number two, here's the special part. I'm also a former cameraman. I mean, I literally operated a camera for a documentary, which is exactly what we're discussing here, is operating a camera for a documentary. I worked for Top Out Films. I've worked for ESPN. 
Um, I've worked for, I've operated a camera for television networks. I've also been a cameraman's assistant. I've been a cameraman. I've been around cameramen. I've worked for ESPN's College Game Day. I've worked for Pac-12 Network. I've worked for Fox Sports. You name it. I've done a lot of camera work in the sports world. And so because I have both a background on, you know, working as a cameraman and have a background in football and know the game of football, uh, I believe I have a unique perspective on this, and I don't believe that this was an organized effort by the Patriots to cheat. I don't. Um, and let me explain why I believe this is more likely a, an eager, aggressive cameraman than it was an organized effort by the Patriots to cheat. Number one, I think people don't understand the way the NFL works. This is what people in the NFL have told me uh, is important. There's a lack of understanding with how the NFL works. The Patriots would not ask a cameraman to film the sideline because absolutely it's actually not helpful. People don't realize this. Filming people on the sideline doesn't help you get signals or win football games because here's the issue. <laughs> this is a really thing that, you know, important thing people understand. Hand signals are not widely used in the NFL to communicate with people on the field. The NFL is not high school football. The NFL is not college football. If your only interaction with football growing up was college or high school football, you would not understand this because in high school football and in college football, oh, people use hand signals to call plays and to communicate from the sideline to people on the field. That is not how it works in the NFL. In the NFL, plays are called to people on the field through a headset. The coaches have a headset on. They call the play through a microphone. That goes directly into the helmet of people on the field. Then the quarterback or the guy on defense who has that helmet that can hear the coach, he calls the play verbally to the people around him. So hand signals are not widely used in the NFL to communicate with people on the sideline. So filming the sideline in the NFL doesn't give you more information than normal. If you did it in college, it would help. If you filmed the sideline in college where people, there is no headset, and you have to use hand signals to communicate plays, it would work. It would make sense. Or if you filmed hand signals in high school football, that makes a huge impact on the game. But in the NFL, where hand signals are not widely used, it doesn't matter. I literally watched an NFL game in person last Sunday. They don't use hand signals to communicate with people on the field. That's not how the NFL works. And so um, <laughs> I just, it, it's very important. You got to understand that. An NFL team would not say, hey, film those hand signals because that's not how the NFL works today. No longer anymore. They use technology rather than hand signals. Now let's talk about that cameraman. That cameraman is an idiot. There are two possibilities here. Either number one, the, you know, maybe, maybe that cameraman had limited exposure to football. He played high school football. And uh, he must have thought, hey, maybe if I film the sideline, I could get a special reward and go, hey, hey, Belichick, guess what? I filmed the sideline of the Bengals, and now you have sideline footage. Maybe that's what happened. And it would make sense because if, if he has a limited understanding of football and doesn't understand that hand signals are not used, and he's a cameraman, he'd go, hey, this is valuable. But this is more likely. Here's what really happened. I believe that this cameraman is an idiot because he filmed something he was not supposed to film. That's a big deal. You can't do that. It's a no-no. But there's a thing in the world of videography and filming and photography called B-roll. You got to understand what B-roll is. B-roll is supplemental or alternative footage that you use to intercut a main with the main shot when you are editing footage together. So if you've ever worked in video or if you've ever edited video before, you know, hey, if I want to hide a cut. So if Isaac Schaumler, I'm talking to you and I make a mistake and you want to hide that mistake, you would cut away to B-roll so that when I 
skip ahead and cut out words I didn't say or whatever, you don't even notice a difference because currently your mind is being distracted by, oh, we're looking at film of the sideline, for example. When you're editing footage, you cut to B-roll so that things look smoother when you cut things out. A good cameraman, I was once a cameraman, a good cameraman is always looking for as much footage as possible, especially when you're shooting a documentary where usually it's a lot of voiceover, a lot of people talking to a camera. You want to hide those cuts with B-roll footage. You want to shoot artistic camera footage to cut to in order to hide edits. Now, that cameraman was not a member of the Patriots football division. That cameraman was a member of the Patriots television department, which is a different, separate division of the New England Patriots, completely separate from the football division. There's a television department. Every team has one. And then there's, oh, guess what? The football department. They're not related at all. They have different bosses. And that's why when the security guy for the Bengals confronted that cameraman, the cameraman was willing to delete it because he knows I'm not that attached to it. I have a lot of B-roll footage. If I delete this, I've got other stuff I can use to cut to when I'm doing and editing this documentary style footage. He wasn't attached to the footage. I do not believe that the cameraman was filming the sideline to try to help the Patriots win games. I know how that sounds. I know people are like, suck, what the heck? But you got to understand. From a cameraman's perspective, he was collecting as much footage as possible to make the video editing process easier. So technically, yes, the Patriots broke a rule. Therefore, they cheated. I acknowledge the Patriots on paper. That's cheating. Absolutely, yes. But filming the sideline didn't actually give them an advantage in the game against the Cincinnati Bengals. Because, oh yeah, hand signals aren't used in the NFL. People use headsets to talk to the guy on the field. Filming a sideline where there's no hand signals taking place is completely invaluable. It doesn't, doesn't help you at all. I guess it's completely not valuable. It doesn't help you at all. And if you understand the video editing process, if you're a former cameraman, which I am, which I also want to really be very clear, people that talk about the NFL on television are former football players. People who, you know, Troy Polamalu, Tom Brady, people who have played in the NFL have probably never operated a camera for a television network. I've actually done that job. (laughs) People that talk about football mostly have never done that. I might be the only person in America talking about football who has experience operating a camera for television networks because I've been on both sides of the camera. People who operate a camera understand they need to gather as much footage as possible to make the editing process easier. That, to me, is the story behind this quote-unquote Patriots cheating scandal. The footage wouldn't have been helpful. Really, I truly believe this was an over-eager cameraman trying to make his job editing a video in the future easier by collecting as much B-roll as possible. you got to understand, this is, there's a reason. I don't think the NFL is going to punish the Patriots heavily for this. It's really not a big deal the way people are treating it. Yes, the Patriots technically cheated. They filmed something they shouldn't have cheated. They're going to get punished on some degree on some level. But this wouldn't have helped the Patriots. And really, I think it was an overzealous, overly aggressive cameraman shooting B-roll footage. Okay, um, I want to say two big thank yous real quick as we transition through the podcast. Um, number one, thank you so much to the people who bought Strong Opinion Sports shirts. Uh, it, it's awesome, man. I get so many, you know, people keep sharing pictures with me on Instagram of their shirt. They, they're like, I got my shirt or I'm wearing my shirt. Like, 
That makes me so happy. If you have your shirt out there or Strong Opinion Sports, send me pictures on Instagram. That makes me so happy. It literally makes my day. I love that so very much. And I've gotten a ton of really positive feedback, which leads me to my number two thank you. I want to thank T-Shirt Dave. He's the guy who, behind the scenes, helped me make the T-shirts happen. Um, People keep telling me, man, my T-shirt is really high quality. The material is incredible. It was well worth the money. I'm so proud because we made an affordable product that's high quality with really good material. That premium cotton blend's phenomenal, and that performance-style shirt is really, really good and high quality. I'm really proud. And so, again, thank you to people who bought the shirts, and thank you to T-Shirt Dave for helping make my vision possible. The thing I cared most about was I want to make a quality T-shirt because I've bought T-shirts before from podcasts, and I got burned. I got a crappy product that I hated. I wear my shirts all the time. You go watch. I was at Family Christmas yesterday. I wore my Strong Opinion sports shirt because I love it. It's literally, I'm not even kidding or exaggerating. That's the only shirt I wear now, whether I'm wearing it under stuff, under a flannel, or literally just wearing it as a T-shirt. That's the only shirt I wear because I love it so much, and I'm really proud of it. And uh, I'm really, um, (laughs) we did it, man. We made a high-quality product. People like it. People bought shirts in Germany and France, literally all over the world. I couldn't believe it. I was like, people in other countries have my Strong Opinion sports shirt out there. That's so cool to me. And so I want to say thank you for buying it. And uh, I really look forward to selling more shirts. I'm going to say this tastefully. Um, we're going to sell more shirts in 2020. I look forward to that. I look forward to working with T-Shirt Dave. I look forward to uh, giving you guys more high-quality products that I'm proud of. And uh, all in all, man, selling shirts was an awesome success, and I'm really happy with it. And uh, I'm just grateful to the people who bought them. If you have pictures, send them to me on Instagram. I want to see them. I love seeing people with their shirts on social media. Um, oh, we have a fun topic here. Oh man, me and Andy Dalton do not agree. Um, the Bengals lost again on Sunday. In fact, they lost to the Miami Dolphins. So now the Bengals are one and 14 and the Bengals have officially secured the number one overall pick in the upcoming 2020 NFL draft, which to me is awesome. If you're a Bengals fan, you're like, I'm I'm not a Bengals fan, but I'm like, I, I think I might live in Cincinnati. It's good for them. For a ba- if you're a person who likes the Bengals, you go, oh, yeah, we got the first overall pick. We got the pick of the litter. We can go get our franchise quarterback, likely Joe Burrow. And uh, honestly, man, the only real win of the year the Bengals have, they've got one win on the season. They're 1-14, but the really only win they have is, in fact, getting that and securing that number one overall pick. And when the Bengals lost, some of their fans cheered because they knew it meant, oh, we're going to get the first pick. Let's go. We're glad we lost. And uh, Andy Dalton, the current Bengals quarterback, current, probably not going to be Bengals quarterback much longer. Andy Dalton, the current Bengals quarterback, did not like people cheering and celebrating when his team lost. Here's what Andy Dalton said. He said, those type of fans, they aren't true fans. If you're a fan of a team, you want them to win. You want them to be successful. Now, there's, here's how the quote ended. He also said this one part. He said, Every time you're out there, you want to win. But it's too late. It's too Andy Dalton already sealed the state with what he said. Um, he gave me ammo to prove him wrong. He said this. Andy Dalton said, if you're a fan of a team, you want them to win. You want them to be successful. And I don't know if you understand this, Andy Dalton. I would argue that winning and being successful are not necessarily the same thing. In this scenario, the best thing for the Bengals to be successful in the future was to lose that game to the Miami Dolphins and secure the number one overall pick. And frankly, this is harsh, but it's honest. The best thing for the Cincinnati Bengals 
is to get rid of Andy Dalton. That hurts. I know the Andy Dalton's grieving. It's pretty clear. He kind of lashed out at the fans. But uh, that's the honest truth about the Cincinnati Bengals. You have to ask yourself, if you live in Cincinnati, are you a Bengals fan or are you an Andy Dalton fan? There's nothing wrong with being an Andy Dalton fan, but you have to acknowledge what's best for Andy Dalton may not be what's best for the Cincinnati Bengals. What's best for Andy Dalton is to keep a job and to keep making millions of dollars to be a franchise quarterback. But if Andy Dalton's not the guy that should be your franchise quarterback, that's not what's best for the Cincinnati Bengals. And I don't believe Andy Dalton should be the franchise quarterback for the Cincinnati Bengals. Therefore, their interests do not lie in the same place. They are not the same. The Bengals want to win. I feel bad for Andy Dalton. What was he supposed to say there? Is he supposed to say, I'm glad people are booing us for getting the first overall pick? But the bitter reality is that giving, you know, getting the number one overall pick was the best thing for the future of the Cincinnati Bengals. You know, beating the Dolphins on Sunday was irrelevant. It wouldn't matter. The Bengals are 1-14 would be, you know, 2-13. Is that much better? Oh, we're 2-13 instead of 1-14. Who cares? Get the first overall pick. No, the better outcome to help the future of the Bengals was securing that number one overall pick. Now, I, I am very cynical that Cincinnati having the, number, having the first overall pick isn't going to matter anyways because their ownership is god-awful. And if you have bad ownership, it doesn't matter how well you are. But I do acknowledge, either way, getting that first overall pick, getting probably Joe Burrow, the quarterback at LSU, that's a far better future than winning that one game and being 2-13 and instead of 1-14 even if that number one overall pick doesn't help them because the ownership is in the way, getting the number one overall pick was the right thing to do there. That's the best thing for the team in the future. Going 2-13 and 13 versus 1-14 and 14 is irrelevant. Get that number one overall pick. Andy Dalton was wrong. You know, True fans, yes, they want their team to win, but they also want their team to be successful, and that isn't always necessarily the same thing. Ooh, we have an emotional topic coming up. I, uh, I don't know. This one's... Uh, from the heart for me, I really, uh, I, I love this topic. It's so cool. It's not cool. It's, it's harsh. It's, it's honest. Um, <clears throat> the Rams lost on Sunday. The 49ers beat them 34-31, to 31, and the Rams' record is now 8-7. and seven. The Rams have been officially eliminated from playoff contention. The Rams have no chance of making the playoffs this year. Now, I want to remind you of something. I want to remind you of February 3rd, 2019. Does anybody know what happened on February 3rd? At the end of the season last year on February 3rd, Sunday, February 3rd, 2019, the Rams lost the Super Bowl to the New England Patriots. Really, I mean, the Rams lost 13-3. to And I want you to put yourself in Jared Goff's shoes. Jared Goff is the Rams quarterback. In fact, it doesn't really matter what Rams player. Just put yourself in the, the shoes or put, try to put yourself in the mind frame of a player that plays for the Rams after losing the Super Bowl. You work all offseason. And then during the 2018 season last year, things go really well. You catch a few breaks. You have some incredible performances. And the NFL regular season ends. Then you play a whole extra month of football. You're playing more than other teams in the entire NFL. You win all the way through the playoffs. Finally, you get to your ultimate goal on February 3rd. Sunday, February 3rd, 2019, it's Super Bowl Sunday. You worked so hard to get here. This is the culmination of years. Years of effort have gotten you to this moment. Super Bowl Sunday, you're playing against the New England Patriots. You probably grew up watching Tom Brady as a kid. You're going to now play against Tom Brady in the Super Bowl. It's unbelievable. This is your dream. This is what you have always wanted. You have fought and fought and fought to get here. And then guess what? 
Your dream gets crushed. The Patriots beat the Rams, and the Rams lose. And you, a member of the LA Rams, have lost the Super Bowl. I go back to your dream, your dream is crushed. The thing you've worked for for years is taken away from you. That's painful. I mean, that, <laughs> that's so brutal. How do you think the Rams felt on Monday, February 4th? After losing the Super Bowl, how do you think you'd feel? It's heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking, man. Monday after losing the Super Bowl, you look in the mirror. And you're like, man, getting to that game, getting to that moment, Super Bowl Sunday, getting there was one of the most difficult journeys I've ever been on in my entire life. That was such a painful, hard process to get there. And now it's the Monday after losing. Am I supposed to just go back to the weight room tomorrow and start the whole process over again? A year of my life? Years of my life? That whole process? Just restart that whole process? Let me tell you from personal experience, there's nothing more painful than the thought of, the daunting thought of, oh my gosh, I got all the way here and I got to just restart the whole process after failing. Putting years of effort into your dream and then coming up short to fail? That Monday after the Super Bowl, after losing the Super Bowl, you just look in the mirror and you're like, where do I even begin? What do I do now? I am a, I'm a failure. And it's easy to say, you're listening to me talk and you're like, of course, if you're a member of the Rams, do it again. Go back to the weight room. It's Monday. Tuesday, you better be back in the weight room. Get back to work. But man, that's, that's not how dreams work. That is not how fighting for a dream and fighting for a goal works. Call it a goal if you want. But I just want to say, if, if you know, I'm sad that the Rams had to deal with Monday, February 4th, that crushing loss, and to look in the mirror and go, we didn't make it. We gave everything we had, and we didn't make it. And it's part of the game. Losing, failure, it's part of the game. It's an important part, and it's incredibly valuable if you allow it to be. If you learn lessons from your failures, uh, they're huge. They can really catapult you off into all kinds of positive stuff in your life. Now, personally, I would rather lose in the AFC Championship game or the NFC Championship game. I would rather not lose the Super Bowl. I'd rather lose the game to get into the Super Bowl because then I can fight, try to, get, try to get back to my dream. But if you get all the way to your dream and it's ripped away from you and you're just you're like, man, oh my gosh. I, get every, I gave it everything I had and then I lost. What a gut-wrenching experience. I just, I just feel for the Rams. They, they gave it everything they could last year. And this year they fell short again. They didn't even make the playoffs. But here is the reality about losing the Super Bowl, though, that you may not understand that I didn't even understand. Eight, eight of the last 10 teams to lose the Super Bowl actually went to the playoffs the next year. I did not believe that. I didn't expect that at all. I started my research process. I said, no way. Teams that lose the Super Bowl probably don't even make the playoffs next year. No out of the last 10, eight of them did. In fact, one of them, New England Patriots, lost the Super Bowl and the very next year went back to the Super Bowl and won. You know, we talk all the time about the Super Bowl hangover. And I, I guess to some degree, yeah, like the grief is real. You lose the Super Bowl, the grief, losing that, that heart-wrenching experience of your dreams being crushed, that's a real thing. But here's the surprising reality about losing the Super Bowl. 2009, the Colts lost the Super Bowl. 2010, the next year, they made the playoffs. 2010, the Steelers lost the Super Bowl to the Packers. And the next year, 2011, they made the playoffs. In the 2011 season, the Patriots lost the Super Bowl. And in 2012, they made the playoffs the next year. 2012, the 49ers lose the Super Bowl. In 2013, they make the playoffs. 
2013, the Broncos lost the Super Bowl to the Seahawks. They got embarrassed. And the next year in 2014, they made the playoffs. The year after. The Seahawks lost the Super Bowl in 2014. In 2015, the next year, they made the playoffs after that. Even the Falcons. In 2016, the Falcons in that season, the 2016 season, technically it was like February 2017, but in the 2016 season, the Falcons lost the Super Bowl. They had a horrible loss where they led the Patriots 28-3 to and still lost the game. Even after that horrible loss, the following season, the Atlanta Falcons still made it into the playoffs. And then go back to that 2017 season, the Patriots lost the Super Bowl to the Eagles. And the next year in the 2018 season, they went back to the Super Bowl and they won. They beat the Rams. Here is the surprising reality about losing the Super Bowl. Only two teams of the last 10 losers of the Super Bowl didn't make it back to the playoffs the next year. I couldn't believe that. I was like, are you, are you serious? That blows my mind. The Panthers lost the Super Bowl in the 2015 season to the Broncos. And that next year, they missed the playoffs. That's one of the teams that didn't make the playoffs after losing the Super Bowl. The Panthers went 6-10. and 10. They missed the playoffs. Then last year in the 2018 season, the Rams lost the Super Bowl to the Patriots. And this year, they've missed the playoffs. But again, surprisingly, a shocking thing I did not believe and didn't understand. Only two of the last 10 teams to lose the Super Bowl didn't make the playoffs the next year. That blows my mind. I had no idea. That is not a stat I believed I would have expected to find when I started the research process. But I do want to say one thing. The Rams gave it everything they had in the Super Bowl and they lost. And the next year, they've kind of fallen apart. They didn't make the playoffs. And, and in life, you want to make, I think it's important in life to make calculated risks. Don't give yourself to something if it's a lost cause, you have no chance to succeed. But you also cannot be afraid of failure. Losing hurts, but it's also a necessary part of the growth process in life. As a human being, losing is actually incredibly valuable if you allow yourself to learn from it. I'm an all-in kind of person. You know, I'm all-in on strong opinion sports. I love giving myself to everything. Uh, that's who I am. And I believe, I, I really believe when you find something worth fighting for, go all-in. Give it to, you know, go, it's better to go all-in and fail than to leave what-ifs out there. You go like, what if I'd done this? Or what if I'd done that? No, I, if you fail, I hope you can tell yourself, I did everything I possibly could to make that work and make that succeed. Giving everything you have and failing, that hurts a ton. It's, it's really painful. The Rams experienced that last year. They gave everything they had. They lost in the Super Bowl. It hurts a ton, but there's a significant, significant freedom in being able to say, if you can say, look in the mirror and say, I have no regrets. I gave it everything I could and I lost. I promise you, I think you'd rather be able to say that than say, I, gave it, I didn't give it everything I could. And there's, what if I'd done this or what if I'd done that? There's nothing wrong with giving everything you have to a cause that's worth fighting for. If you lose, I hope you're willing to lose. I hope you learn from that loss. But don't be afraid of failure. It's so important. The Rams, um, they haven't recovered from their, their Super Bowl loss, and that's sad to me. But I just, I really, that whole story, the Rams and losing the Super Bowl, it's a gut-wrenching, you give everything you have and you fail. And I just found it so fascinating and so uh, enjoyable to do research about it and to talk about it. I was like, man, that's a, a, a process and a story I find incredibly compelling. Uh, I'm not going to give you any spoilers, but I do want to very briefly say this is a, I, I included this because screw it. It's my show. I can do whatever I want. Um, in four sentences, four very short sentences that do not spoil the movie at all. I want to share my thoughts on Star Wars Episode Nine, The Rise of Skywalker. Um, I didn't hate it, but I also didn't love it. To me, Star Wars Episode Nine 
felt kind of corporate and joyless. I've worked in movies before. I literally worked for a movie before. I went, eh, like, that's not for me. Um, it did not grab me emotionally the way some movies in the past have. One of my favorite movies of all time is 2009 Star Trek, the first one that, in fact, the guy who directed episode nine, J.J. Abrams, made that movie as well. That movie grabbed my heart and it's like, oh, I was in. I was emotional. And look, I was in a dark spot. I really wanted Star Wars episode nine to pull me in. And I just couldn't connect with it. I, you know, Some people will say it's a horrible abomination of a movie. Star Wars Episode Nine is not an awful movie. In fact, I would say Star Wars Phantom Menace is significantly worse of a movie. I mean, Phantom Menace had Jar Jar Binks. There's nothing worse in the Star Wars universe than Jar Jar Binks. And I really think that people who say that Star Wars Episode Nine is this awful, awful movie are people that had just significantly unrealistic expectations. Guys, that's all I have to say about Star Wars Episode Nine. But hey, I want to say, if, if you like that movie, great. I think it's, it's a movie that's... If you want to hate it, you will. And if you want to find reasons to enjoy that movie, you will as well. And so I hope you watch Star Wars Episode Nine. I hope you enjoy it if you want to. Um, and if you hate it, that's, that's on you because it's kind of a choice. I mean, there, this is one of those weird movies where you have kind of the choice to hate it or love it. And uh, I hope you see it because I'm going to see it again. I'm going to see it with my family probably on Wednesday for Christmas. And maybe I'll think differently the second time. But so far, that's how I feel about Star Wars Episode Nine. <sighs> Ooh. We did Star Wars. What the heck? We're going to talk about Justin Herbert next. By the way, I've been talking for 56 minutes straight. I haven't even like, I'm just, I feel great. What a weird day. What a, I love my job. I really do. My job is amazing. And I'm so grateful for you guys listening and watching and I, I'm having so much fun. Um, Justin Herbert is the quarterback at the University of Oregon. And uh, he's going to be a first round pick in the upcoming 2020 NFL draft. He's a quarterback. It's an incredibly valuable, valuable position in the NFL. And uh, I've had an uneasy feeling about him for months. I've just had a hard time with him. I mean, it's, it's really bizarre to me because why can't I embrace Justin Herbert? I've had this ongoing battle with myself. I've been journaling about it. Like, why don't I like Justin Herbert? And journaling, I mean, I, I write all the time. It's what I do. Um, and it's bizarre because Justin Herbert on the field is a really good quarterback. He's got a great arm. He can move around a little bit. He can make all the throws. And, and I guess he's a good enough decision maker to you know, succeed and eventually get better enough to play at a high level in the NFL. So Justin Herbert, the quarterback at Oregon, has all the tools required on the field to be a successful NFL franchise quarterback. But nonetheless, I've had this gut feeling something is off. And I'm like, what, what is going on? Why don't... Why am I having such a hard time embracing Justin Herbert? And so I want to warn you right now, if you cannot handle strong opinions, get out now. Stop watching. Stop listening. Um, but I'm going to assume you're listening to this video and I'm going to assume you're watching this podcast because you want my thoughts and you want to hear my Zach Schaumler's opinions. Um, I've been trying to make sense of all this. I, you know, Why can't I embrace Justin Herbert? And I've been reading a book by a guy named Malcolm Gladwell called Blink. And Blink is all about... You know, the big theme in the book is understanding your gut feelings, where you have an uneasy feeling about something, and you may not be able to articulate why you don't think something is right, but you know it's not right. You know something's off. And so I've learned that in my profession, in, in the world of sports, if I have a gut feeling about something or if I believe something, it's better to say it and be wrong than not say it and be right about it and be like, I should have said it. I should have said it, and I didn't. I'd rather just say it and get it out. Um, so that's how we got to this statement I'm going to say next. There's an important statement I've been trying to analyze for a long time. Why do I not have a good feeling about Justin Herbert? I think I've narrowed it down to this one statement. I do not believe Justin Herbert loves 
football. I don't believe Justin Herbert, the Oregon quarterback, loves the game of football. And that's, man, I understand that's a harsh thing to say. Like, Zach, how can you say that? He plays quarterback at Oregon. He, he plays college football, a Division I quarterback. How can you say he doesn't love football? But I encourage you to watch Joe Burrow, the quarterback at LSU. Joe Burrow is passionate. You, it just leaks out of him. Watch his Heisman Trophy speech. The guy's crying. It's clear Joe Burrow loves the game of football. And then watch how he plays the game. Joe Burrow has made really shocking, dramatic improvements to the way he plays, which means he cares. He's doing the work behind the scenes to make himself a better quarterback. Now, Justin Herbert, the Oregon quarterback, I believe he likes football. I do. Football's fun. Who wouldn't like football? You're the quarterback at University of Oregon. You're in Eugene. You're the king of Eugene. You get free t-shirts. There's an amazing building you get to go to to work every single day. It's a good life. I've been to Oregon's facilities. They're awesome. The people there are nice. I know some of the staff. They got cool uniforms. It's a good life to be the quarterback at the University of Oregon. But there's a really big difference. Maybe not big, there's a, but there's a distinct difference between liking football and loving football. It's what you do in the offseason. It's, it's kind of telling here. In the offseason, if you like football, you, you get on a weightlifting program, you throw every day, um, you follow the program you're given and the training program you've built because you like football and that's your job. That's what you do. You just do what people tell you to do and you follow it. But in the offseason, when you love football, you also follow that weightlifting plan and you also throw every single day because that's what you're supposed to do to get better. But here's the difference. When you love football, you know, guys who like football do what they're supposed to do. Guys who love football, especially quarterbacks, go the extra mile. They're always tinkering. They're always tweaking their mechanics and making their footwork slightly better. At quarterback, especially if you're an NFL franchise, you want a quarterback who eats, sleeps, breathes, loves, and is passionate about football. Who does more than just the minimum expectation. Who does more than just the plan. You want a guy who is obsessed maybe a little bit and just that's what his life is. That's what he does. And if you're fueled by passion and love for the game, that's a far more sustainable motivation to keep working and to keep getting better. Not only does Justin Herbert not play with the same kind of fire and energy and passion as Joe Burrow. And this is where I admit, uh, maybe that's just his style. I, I try to be very, you know, very cautious. Maybe Justin Herbert's just a boring, even keel guy that never gets too high and never gets too low. So maybe that's an unfair criticism. I acknowledge that. It's not even a criticism. It's just a, I'm pointing that out. You watch Joe Burrow. He's excited. He cares. He's passionate. There's a thing that comes out of him. It's like a fire inside. You don't see that same fire when you watch Justin Herbert, but maybe that's just a personality differences. I acknowledge that. But then you look at how Justin Herbert has played for the last three years at the University of Oregon. It's like he plateaued. He just stopped getting better. There's a, he just has been kind of the same quarterback for the last three years. Why isn't he getting significantly better every year the same way Joe Burrow is? Meaning that I think Justin Herbert was like, I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. It's working. Just keep, he's just going to keep driving the car down the road rather than accelerating the car and dialing it up a notch and continuing to improve and continuing to progress. And this is all speculation. I can own that. You, you might be mad. Zach, you can't say this stuff. I can say whatever I want. But this is speculation. I'm making a guess here. It's my gut feeling. I don't know. This isn't confirmed. There's no facts here. I'm just, this is what I believe and kind of my opinion. That's what the show is. And if you want to poke holes in this opinion and this theory, go ahead. You can poke holes in this all you want. This is not bulletproof. It's a theory. But I've got a really, 
uneasy feeling about Justin Herbert, and it's not quite right. I'm not going to be able to have conversations with Justin Herbert the same way other NFL teams. NFL teams get the opportunity to meet Justin Herbert, to shake his hand, to have in-depth conversations about him. I believe if I could talk to Justin Herbert in person, I could get a sense of, does he love football or not? But I do believe that you know my uneasy feeling, my uneasy gut feeling about Justin Herbert is because he doesn't love football. He likes football, doesn't love it, and that's a huge difference. And I wouldn't want a franchise quarterback that doesn't love the game of football. Okay, um, here's a good life lesson. Don't be afraid to make changes in your life that make your life better. Most people are afraid to change. It's just a fact. It's true. People I know in the world are afraid to make changes in their life, even if they know it's going to help them. Doing the work to change is scary and hard. But if you know something is hurting you or if you know something's holding you back, don't be afraid to get rid of it. Just get remove it from your life. Life is too short. Your time is too valuable to waste time with something that's hurting you. Now, I'm looking and, I'm looking and speaking directly to the Cleveland Browns. You must fire your head coach at the end of the season. Freddie Kitchens is done. And if the Browns don't fire Freddie Kitchens, their head coach, I am going to blast them to the moon. I am going to make a long, ranty, furious statement saying, hey, this NFL team doesn't understand. They're afraid to change, and they're afraid to make changes that make them better. Freddie Kitchens seems like a cool dude. He just seems like a good guy. I think I would love to get a beer with Freddie Kitchens. I really would. But Freddie Kitchens is the wrong guy for the head coaching job of the Cleveland Browns. He should not be the head coach in Cleveland. First, his play calling is awful. And he has completely mismanaged Odell Beckham Jr., the receiver for the Cleveland Browns. It's like giving someone a really sharp knife. You're like, I got this. Hey, man, I got this great knife. And you look at how they're using the knife, and they're trying to mash like the handle and cut stuff with the handle. And you're like, dude, that's the wrong end. You're not even doing, you're not even using it right. Or what if you try to dig a hole with a shovel and you're using the handle rather than the side with the spade on it? Like, you're an idiot. You're using your tool wrong. And the Cleveland Browns have completely misused Odell Beckham Jr. The tools they have at their disposal, they haven't done a good job using their players to get the most out of them. And then you have recent stories where the Cleveland Browns players on the sidelines are begging other teams on the sideline, hey, come get me. Hey, trade for me. And I thought it was like, no way that happens. And then it turns out it's real. There really is a thing where people are doing that. They're like, hey, come trade for us. We want to get out of here. Freddie Kitchens cannot handle all the personalities in Cleveland. And the Cleveland Browns culture is awful. And Freddie Kitchens is somehow making it worse. That's not good at all. The Browns need to upgrade. They need to seek change. The Browns need to move on from their head coach, Freddie Kitchens. And if they do not, again, I will blast them to the moon. I am going to go on and on and on. This NFL franchise refuses to change and refuses to have the courage to step away from something that's hurting them. There's one more thing, actually. I, I bet the Browns like Freddie Kitchens. Um, I've been in relationships where I like the person I'm dating. Doesn't mean they weren't bad for me. <laughs> you know, Freddie Kitchens is bad for the Cleveland Browns. They might like him. They, 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 I'm sure they think he's a good guy. The, the, the ownership and the, the front office, he's a nice guy. They want him to succeed. They wanted it to work. And it's painful when something you want to work doesn't work. It's like, ah, oh, this is frustrating and hard. He seems like a good man. Freddie Kitchens does. Seems like a nice man. Kind of stupid. That shirt was dumb. Um, but just because you like someone and just because you like something doesn't mean it's not hurting you. Freddie Kitchens is hurting the Browns. They need to fire him 
the minute the year ends. Walk away, find a new head coach, and find someone who doesn't make their franchise worse. Wow, that was fiery. I don't, I don't call for people jobs very often. My dad was unemployed for a long time. I don't like doing that. But man, when you see a business being damaged by their employees, that's, that's, a, that's a frustrating, painful thing to watch. And you go, oof, that's not good at all. And what's happening to the Cleveland Browns is not acceptable and it's not good. Their head coach is hurting their franchise and making it worse and driving talented players to want to leave their franchise. You can't stand for that. You can't put up with that. People are hurting you. Your time is too valuable. You matter too much to be hurt and damaged by people who are making your life worse. Okay. Um, I'm going to drink some water. I'm going to simmer down. <laughs> and then I have a... Uh, man, I've got... I've got, st- got two stories left I want to talk about. Uh, one is my favorite moment, really, from the entire sports year. I'm so excited to share it. Um, woo. Right, over an hour in. We're doing well. I, I love this show, man. Um, <clears throat> Joe Burrow's Heisman Trophy speech is one of my favorite moments of the entire year in sports. I, man, I love it so much. It's certainly one of the best Heisman Trophy speeches I've ever seen. Um, I mean, the dude was crying. Joe Burrow was crying at the podium. It was so genuine. It was, it was beautiful. And I love that Joe Burrow thanked Ohio State, his former college. Um, if you don't know, Joe Burrow transferred from Ohio State to LSU. And when he talked about his old school that he transferred out of to try to get on the field, there was no bitterness. There was no anger. Um, he just had genuine gratitude for Ohio State helping develop him and get him to where he is. And that takes so much maturity. Uh, and I admire that. I look up to that. That's really, really cool. Joe Burrow literally did everything right during his Heisman Trophy speech. Um, he was announced the winner. He gets up. He hugs all his family. He hugs his head coach at Orgeron. But then he does something that was really wild and really cool and really classy. He's on one side of the podium. He goes and hugs his family. He walks all the way across the auditorium, goes to find Ohio State's head coach, Ryan Day. Ryan Day was there because two other Ohio State members were also nominated to win the Heisman Trophy. So Ryan Day's there in the crowd. He goes over there and he hugs Ryan Day, the Ohio State head coach, and he hugs the Ohio State strength coach who's there for, you know, to support Chase Young and uh, Justin Fields. So he went out of his way to walk across the auditorium to hug people who he no longer works with. Joe Burrow gets it. Joe Burrow understands. If I'm a, an NFL franchise quarterback, everything I do is an example and is a, really, it's, a, it's me, it's like a, a resume and an interview. Everything you do leaks out and is important. People are, have eyeballs and they're watching. Joe Burrow thanked his offensive line. He thanked his teammates. He had this beautiful moment where he thanked Ed Orgeron, his college head coach at LSU, for taking a chance on him when he transferred because he said, you had no idea how good I was. You took a chance on me. I really appreciate it. My family loves you and appreciates you. It almost made me cry. I was like, this is beautiful. This is so cool. And then here's what's really telling and shows how much Joe Burrow understands the impact of his words. He gave a shout-out to his home state and his hometown in Ohio talking about uh, poverty. And by talking about that issue, he brought a lot of donations to Ohio, to his hometown. They got money donated to them because he was willing to bring them up. The awareness and understanding, hey, my words have power. Bam, he gets it. Joe Burrow's Heisman Trophy speech was perfect. It was literally everything you could ask for for an NFL team. He showed tremendous depth. He showed authenticity. If I'm an NFL franchise looking at Joe Burrow, watching, I would feel completely comfortable making Joe Burrow my top man. I remember when I was in high school, um, some of the rich dads at our school 
would buy their sons a brand new sports car. I mean, like, I, I remember one guy in particular, his dad bought him a brand new Mustang. And I immediately thought, oh, no, <laughs> that is a bad, bad part. Remember me, I got my first car literally for free from a drug dealer. I'm not even kidding. So um, <laughs> it was pretty wild. And uh, when I saw this dad bought his son a Mustang, I was like, that's a, that's a bad idea. I mean, he, that son is reckless and irresponsible. And I wish I was kidding. I'm not. That son, two months later, wrecked that Mustang. Bam, that car trashed instantly. And there are some people in life where you look at them and you go, I'm not comfortable giving you the keys to this car. I don't think you have the responsibility it takes to handle this moment. Joe Burrow was absolutely not one of those guys. Johnny Manziel was one of those guys. When he was drafted, he's a Heisman Trophy winner. The Browns drafted Johnny Manziel, and you're like, ooh, I don't know that you give Johnny Manziel the keys to that brand-new Mustang. Joe Burrow, here are the keys. Be home by 9. I trust you. In fact, fact, be home at 10. Be home at 11 if you want. I trust you to have good judgment. I trust Joe Burrow. His Heisman Trophy speech is a great example of a guy who clearly understands the responsibility and the weight that it takes to be an NFL franchise quarterback. In his speech, he showed wisdom and depth far beyond his years. His graciousness was awesome, the way he talked about Ohio State. Um, I, I thought it was so cool. And then the coolest thing he said was this. He, I think near the, like the, the second third of his speech, he talked about how he tried to leave a legacy of hard work and preparation everywhere he went, from high school to college to his second college. I love Joe Burrow. He's a great quarterback on the field. Everything on the field from Joe Burrow, arm strength, accuracy, decision-making, I love it. But then forget on-the-field stuff. The other side of playing quarterback that matters is how you present. And Joe Burrow presents incredibly well. I'm equally confident in Joe Burrow on the field as I am off the field. And that right there, that is such a good feeling. To have Joe Burrow, the, the top quarterback coming up in the NFL draft, who's not Ryan Leaf, who's not Johnny Menzel, who's not even Baker Mayfield, no offense to Baker, but Baker's outspoken and does stuff. I go, I cringe sometimes. Joe Burrow gets it. He presents incredibly well. And he's really talented on the field. And he's the best quarterback in the NFL draft physically on the field. But also, again, the way he presents, the Heisman Trophy speech and the way he handled himself that night was so classy and elegant. I was like, man, this guy gets it. He's got a ton of responsibility. And if I'm an NFL franchise, I have no problem giving him the keys to that car. Okay, we have a huge game coming up tonight on Monday Night Football. We have the Packers at the Vikings. It's the battle for the NFC North. Um, really, it's a battle for first place in that division. Both teams have clinched spots in the playoffs. The Packers are 11-3. and The Minnesota Vikings are 10-4. and If the Vikings win, they have a chance of keeping the division alive. Um, here's the, you know, the, the hopes of winning a division, I guess. Here's the big storyline to me. Vikings running back, Dalvin Cook is injured. He will not play. And so not only does that give a huge advantage to the Green Bay Packers because hey, the Vikings missing their really good running back, Dalvin Cook. That's a big deal. That helps the Packers. But also, this puts even more pressure on Kirk Cousins, the Minnesota Vikings quarterback. Sadly, Kirk Cousins is known for wilting and for losing in high-pressure situations. It's sad, but that's just the reality of Kirk Cousins. And uh, Kirk Cousins has played eight times on Monday Night Football. He's lost every single time. So tonight should be fun. It should be incredibly interesting. Uh, Both teams have a good defense. I think that the Vikings are a little bit better of a roster. But how does Kirk Cousins handle that moment? Monday Night Football, he's at home. He's in Minnesota. He's got a home crowd behind him. 
how does he handle? If, man, this would be a huge loss for Kirk Cousins' resume. That be at home against the Packers, have a better roster, and lose to Aaron Rodgers. The bad man. I'm telling you, man, that would be a bad look. And uh, to be 0-9 on Monday Night Football if you're Kirk Cousins, whoo, that smells awful. That's a, that's a really stinky pile of poop, and that's, that'd be terrible. So um, I can't believe I said that, but I said that, um, whatever, it happened. Didn't mean to say it, but eh, it works. And nothing, nothing really bad. It's just, that's just weird to say that. I don't know. Um, either way, man, I'm going to watch Monday Night Football tonight. I cannot wait to watch the Packers and the Vikings. I don't know who's going to win, and that's the fun of it, right? That's my favorite thing in football is when you have a really good matchup coming up, and you actually can't tell who's better and who's going to win. That's what I live for in sports. And that's what we have tonight at Monday Night Football. We have the Packers at the Vikings in Minnesota. A really good matchup. I don't know who's going to win. It's going to be so much fun. I cannot wait to talk about it on the next episode. And um, yeah, it's going to be awesome. Now with that, we have one more thing I want to talk about. Uh, if you are struggling, please go get help. Nearly four years ago, my younger brother took his life. He committed suicide. Uh, and it was a heartbreaking loss. It's one of the hardest things I've ever been through. Uh, I've got some key benchmark moments in my life. One of them is my brother's death. And I learned two really painful lessons from my brother's death. Number one is that my brother should have shared his struggles. He never did. My brother never told anybody he was having a hard time. Uh, One day I walked into his bedroom, found him dead on the floor, um, and he suffered in silence. He never told anybody he was having a hard time. So I encourage you, the suicide hotline is 1-800-273-8255, That is a suicide hotline. If you're struggling, go get help. And don't be afraid. Reach out to people in your life. You know, I was struggling the other night. Um, my girlfriend and I broke up. I'm miserably sad. My heart is broken. I am destroyed. I thought I was going to marry her. And so I went over to my best friend's family, his house. Um, and uh, my friend's mom was there. And I, just, I went and cried. I literally just went and cried in my friend's mom's arms. She hugged me. She's like a mother figure to me in my life. Um, and it was, I needed to cry. And I, when I was struggling, I, I wasn't alone. I went and saw people and hung out with people that helped me in my life. So I encourage you, if you're doing that, go get help. Don't suffer in silence. Don't suffer alone. Here's the other really valuable lesson I learned when my brother died. I didn't make it clear enough he could talk to me. I didn't make it clear enough to my brother, hey, I love you, man. So tell the people in your life you love them. Make it clear to you care about them. And then don't be afraid to have conversations with a little bit more depth. Don't be afraid to talk about things with more depth than just movies or sports or video games. There's real world stuff going on. If you want to talk about that, don't be afraid to have the courage to have a conversation about real world stuff beyond sports and movies and video games. Uh, If you're struggling, go get help. The Suicide Hotline, 1-800-273-8255. Hope you have a great day. I love you guys so much. I really hope you're doing well. Um, I am getting my mojo back. I'm really, I'm starting to get back in the rhythm of things and I'm starting to feel good after my my breakup, which is uh, monumental. It's something I'm going to talk about for the next 20 years, I think literally. So um, learned so many, so many lessons and done so much journaling and it's been really, really hard for me. Um, I've, I've been in a lot of relationships. This is the one. This is the one that um, that hurt the, the, the tremendous amount. So, um, yeah, good for me. I hope you're having a great life. I hope you're having a, a great night. I'm going to talk to you guys tomorrow. I hope you enjoy Monday Night Football. And uh, bam, 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 we are done.